0: welcome to insight mind body talk a body-based mental health podcast we're your hosts jessica warpla schultz and jeannie kolker whether you've tried everything to feel better and something is still missing or you've already discovered the wisdom of the body this podcast will encourage and support you in healing old wounds strengthening relationships and developing your inner potential all by accessing the mind body connection Please know, while we're excited to share and grow together, this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for mental health treatment. It doesn't replace the one-on-one relationship you have with a qualified healthcare professional and is not considered psychotherapy. Thanks, Jess. And thank you for listening. Now let's begin a conversation about what happens when we take an integrative approach to improving our well-being.
1: Welcome to Insight Mind Body Talk. My name is Jeff. I'm a licensed clinical social worker from Insight Counseling and Wellness. And today, I'm your host. Don't worry, Jess is here as well. Hi, Jess.
0: Hello. Hey, Jeff. Hi, everyone. I am still here, excited to listen, but we thought it would be pretty cool to let Jeff take the lead. So without further ado, Why don't you introduce our topic and our guest?
1: Thanks so much, Jess. And I'm really glad to have you here riding shotgun for for my first uh, (laughs) attempt at this. (laughs) Me too. So today's episode is one that um, I I brought forward as uh, near and dear to me for several reasons. One of them is that there's a trend in mental health right now that, and we wanna cover this particular topic for our clients and other therapists in our office. And the second one is many of our clients have, have actually brought up this topic and have wanted to know more about it. And I want to, mm-hmm. you know, be able to speak to it in a, in a way that, that makes sense to clients, but is also, you know, accurate. And so I have a personal and a professional relationship with our guests today to talk about this cutting edge therapy. And we are, of course, talking about psychedelic assisted therapy. And there's a there's been a lot um, of talk about this right now in the Madison community and all over the country and even the world. And it's a modality that is is really just rising. And so we feel fortunate and grateful to have with us today, uh, Dr. Travis Fox. And I'll tell you a little bit about Dr. Fox before we let him uh, join us here. So, Travis. Fox is a psychologist in private practice here in Madison, Wisconsin, and he works with individuals, groups, and provides seminars, workshops, and supervision. Specialty areas of interest are working with men's issues, healthcare professionals in the medical and mental health field, groups, and psychedelic assisted therapy. He's also a researcher with the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he's a therapist and assessor of a variety of FDA-approved clinical trials, investigating the potential for psychedelic-assisted therapy for the treatment of trauma and addiction. He has received training from MAPS and USONA to work on on these clinical trials at UW-Madison and also from the Polaris Institute to offer ketamine-assisted therapy which offers, which he offers in his private practice that we'll talk a little more about today. Travis is also trained at the Gestalt Institute and practiced for almost 20 years, most notably at the Gestalt Institute of Cleveland, where he is now a member of the teaching and training faculty. Thank you so much for being here, Travis. We Thank appreciate you. you lending your expertise and experience to us.
2: Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation, Jeff, and um, to be joining you, Jess.
0: Well, thank you for being here. We really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. And in that spirit of what I mentioned earlier, of providing accurate and um, up to date information to our our clients and and really anyone. Um, directly part of the Insight family or, or affiliated, uh, we really wanted to get um, some info right from someone who's doing this work. You know, we, Jess and I talk a lot about, we did a recent episode on social media and really in this age where we can get as much information as we can possibly hold. Oh, the yeah. question becomes, right, is this accurate? Is it up to date? Is it is it presented in a uh neutral way for clients and people to to be able to consume and and search and seek this out so in that vein we really would love you travis if you would start and give us some of the the nuts and bolts of what is psychedelic assisted therapy
2: yeah thanks jeff that's a uh it's a big question and i'll start kind of in a more general way you know i think um when I think of what is psychedelic assisted therapy, I think of it first as therapy. So the way that um, we practice, for example, a winding path in our use of ketamine is that it's, it's the use of the medicine embedded in a therapeutic relationship. Mm. And so, whereas you know, some might think, um, take this medication, and the improvement comes because of the medication, our belief is it's in conjunction with the therapy relationship. And right now, there's kind of only two routes in the United States to get psychedelic assisted therapy. Uh, One is uh, through ketamine assisted psychotherapy, which we'll be talking about in detail as we go on. Um, That is currently accessible to folks. Uh, It's legal to provide. And then the other route would be through clinical trials. So right now um, there are trials going on all over the country and other countries as well, focusing on a variety of of these substances. Um, And so there's research happening, looking at different indications for psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, um, 5-MEO-DMT, so there's there's quite a bit happening now. And so, but in terms of what your listeners could access now, it's more like ketamine space. Um, And so what does the psychotherapy entail? I kind of think of it in three stages. So you have the initial preparatory phase. So that is where you're meeting with your clinician. So I would meet with folks, spending time getting to know them, getting to know what's bringing them in, starting to formulate a sense of goals and intentions for the medicine sessions. Um, and just doing a lot of education during that preparatory phase. What are some things to expect? How best can we support you? And then there's the actual medicine session or the dosing session is what we often call it. And that mm-hmm. uh, the length of that varies depending on the the substance being used, the psychedelic that that's being onboarded. And during that time, you would have in our clinic we use a two clinician model as well as in the research so you'd have two providers there with you for the duration of the experience to provide support um, to help you through any challenges you're experiencing and then that third phase is the integration phase and this is where i really think the work really starts to happen and the change is really possible is during that integration phase and so there's kind of a yeah that three-stage process of what is psychedelic psychedelic-assisted therapy. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. You know, I'm at least at least for me, I didn't realize there was, you know, different stages to what's happening. But it really I feel I mean, just actually a lot of relief to know that, you know, clients are supported in such, you know, an extensive way and that it, you know, I thought Again, speaking to the fact that I don't know much about this area, I just assumed it was like they're going to maybe a treatment center, receiving the treatment, almost like, you know, receiving, you know, saline solution or something in the ER so that they feel better and then leaving again and so i really appreciate hearing you know the different levels of support that are provided for the client throughout the process and that most importantly throughout it that there is that relationship as you said
2: right and now that being said there are a variety of models um, that are out there that are being experimented with or used so when you said you know like so i'm talking about the way that i think about like psychedelic assisted psychotherapy Mm -hmm. um However, there are different models depending on the medicine, right? So ketamine, for example, can be offered in an IV infusion clinic where you wouldn't have that kind of relationship pre and post experience, where it would be a little bit more in a medical model. Um, And so I just wanted to clarify that I'm talking about a particular way of thinking about um, the therapy embedded in a in a therapy relationship, but there are other models out there that we can talk about more in detail as well just so for listeners can kind of have a sense of what might be a good fit for them as these things start sure. to become more publicly
1: mm-hmm.
0: sure definitely so can i ask another question so for the do you know and again so you're talking about kind of like what happens at the the model that you work in right now with the different phases are there other expectations for someone if they do go to, let's say, an infusion clinic that they have an outpatient psychotherapist or that they're in, that they do have a team of support somewhere? Or are there some people that are just receiving the services, you know, maybe just with their PCP as a support, just, you know, just kind of so that I can imagine, like, all the different options for for possible listeners, clients?
2: Right. And, and I'm not... Completely aware of what say an infusion clinic may ask a person to to have as they would have as part of their care team. Um, and I know there are a few different. So this is ketamine we're talking about here, right? Which is is accessible now and um, maybe be helpful to talk a bit more about. There's different routes of administration which would then include would have a different sort of way of working with the medicine. So what you're asking about right now, what we're talking about is the IV infusion model. So um, there are IV infusion clinics here in Madison already operating, and I do believe that UW Health also offers um, IV ketamine. Um, And for uh, some folks, insurance will actually cover portions of treatment. Right, and so my interst- I'm, I'm less versed in the IV infusion model, like what it looks like on the ground, but my understanding is, you know, it's about a 45-minute infusion. So, you would go to the hospital, you'd be in a hospital room, they would hook you up to the IV, a nurse would be there to, to support you with getting set up, getting comfortable, and then they run the infusion. And often, you're alone in the room, and then when the time is up, Um, They stop the infusion. There may be a period of kind of uh, giving you a chance to just kind of come back into your body, come back into the present. And then in that model, someone would drive you home. So there wouldn't be like a post integration support. And that comes from the medical model belief that it's the medicine interacting with your brain creating the the relief, the change. And one of the advantages of, of that model is it it has been shown to be really effective and rapidly effective for chronic suicidality mm. and treatment resistant depression mm. and so it, i actually have um, some folks i work with that do go to iv clinics for their ketamine and then do psychotherapy with me but they've chosen kind of to go that route in part i think because insurance might cover it or just the ease and the, the shorter time requirement there where it's 45 minutes, whereas in our model, it's about a three hour session for the medicine session.
1: It sounds to me, Travis, like um, in the IV route, it is looking, being looked at as almost like a last resort, maybe not a last resort, but a um, a treatment once folks have tried other things. Um, the chronic depression I think is what made me think of that or the suicidality is is that accurate and is that I would guess it's not the same uh for the integration type therapy that you've been talking about do you can you say much about those differences and um how you view those
2: I have heard folks you know who especially when you start talking about treatment, resistant depression, you know, folks have tried a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And so there, this has been, for some it is a last resort option, likely because they just weren't aware of that option. I think the awareness is building around this being a potential treatment. Um, You know, ketamine was originally approved as an anesthetic. And so any uh, subjective effects of the medicine We're off. We're just seen as sort of a a, a side effect. Um, Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until later where uh, dosages started getting discovered around. um, You know, there's psychedelic properties to ketamine. And so, so yes. um, Folks may come to that, you know, feeling like I've tried everything. This is my last resort, and I think that's that for me as a clinician really. It just makes me want to make sure those people do have therapeutic support because it doesn't work for everybody. And I think that's the thing that doesn't get said enough is it's, it's not a silver bullet. It's not a cure all. And so, um, while many people are helped and helped rapidly with that relief, um, not everybody is and everybody who is helped. It doesn't necessarily. Linger. Right? Mm-hmm. and so that's the other piece that we're still trying to figure out through the research is not only does this help folks but then what is going to help maintain those gains right mm-hmm. that's where I think the integration process is really valuable and why I really have gone more toward the psychotherapeutic models out there um, to support people post-medicine experience to make those behavioral changes and to hopefully have that relief stick around longer, right? Now the infusion model, I mean, people are going for multiple infusions, right? So depending on um, what the recommendation of their prescriber is, they may go in for a couple infusions a week, sometimes weekly, right, for a period of time. Um, And then in our model, uh, we tell folks, you know, if possible to have one to three medicine sessions right within our treatment approach
1: that would be the dosing session
2: that would be the dosing session yeah yeah and so so where we're different is um you know we're really i guess i should back up a little bit like what is ketamine used for right so we've talked about chronic suicidality we've talked about treatment resistant depression There's some good evidence out there now that it can help in the depressive phase of a bipolar illness. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some research being done in that and people are using this to support folks to manage anxiety, OCD and PTSD and trauma symptoms. And so that's another reason we prefer the psychotherapeutic model, because, as you know, a lot of trauma occurs in relationships and a lot of the healing needs to occur in relationships
0: most definitely. And so part of the process,
2: right, is getting that relationship with the psychotherapist as well as the psychiatrist prescribing the medication who can then be there to support you during the medicine session. So the healing can happen in relationship this way in this model too. And then you have that kind of post-integration process. And part of our thinking around that integration piece is Um, You may have heard the term like neuroplasticity. So one of the ways we think that ketamine and other psychedelics um, help people who have psychiatric issues is it creates this sort of like window in the brain where there's new neural connections are, are available, right? Old fixed patterns, old fixed pathways in the brain get broken up a little bit. And there's opportunities to sort of in a way rewire your own brain but to do that right you have the window open and that window sometimes is referred to as the afterglow period lasts often just one to two weeks mm-hmm. and so we really think that getting in there and doing some of those that behavioral and emotional work on the integration side maybe utilizing insights that happen during the session and how to apply them in your life is really where those that reforming of those connections can happen and so that's our belief is that the integration process is really essential and having a safe therapeutic space to explore what comes up is primary, you know. Um, and so we think it's kind of, you know, the approach really generally is the set and setting approach, which you may be familiar with, right? Mm-hmm. So a big part of that prep part is. Getting the mindset. That that it optimizes healing and growth. Right. So that's what we mean by set. So that's what we're doing with preparing them, not only for euphoric experiences, but also it often includes very challenging experiences. And so, um, sort of managing expectations is part of developing the mindset going in, having an intention and a focus to hold lightly in the session. And then, as therapists, we're part of the setting. Right. And so, there's a healing setting that we try to create just from the decorations in the room to the way that we carry ourselves, right? So that setting is a really big part of um, the psychedelic experience. And it's why we you know that like people take psychedelics recreationally all the time and don't find healing and a big part of that is that it's not in the context of a therapeutic setting. And so we really try to leverage all of that toward healing.
1: I the the term intentional and intentionality kind of came up for me as you were talking uh, about related to this this type of treatment and being open and receptive um, to the potential of growth and healing. That sounds like a pretty important part. right. Right, yeah,
2: that openness is is pretty essential at the same time. Some people come in nervous and afraid, right, and that that's okay as well. And so that's part of having that time before the medicine session to really develop that relationship, that trust, that if really difficult emotions or material emerges, I'm, I'm held in this safe container. Mm-hmm. I think that's the advantage of the psychotherapeutic model.
1: And as we're talking with you, you know, the the listeners can't see, but we can see, you know, and I've been in your lovely office at at, uh, Winding Path. Is that where, um, is that the setting in which you all are doing this work or where would that be? Great
2: question. Um, This office has been used for ketamine sessions and then we're, in the process of uh, um, getting a dedicated dosing room set up upstairs in the clinic. And so our clinic is kind of a home setting. Um, It's a smaller clinic. Right now there's five, I think five clinicians here. Um, And so we're trying to create, yeah, just a nice homey vibe where people feel comfortable and kick off their shoes. Um, We've got pull out pouches for folks, you know, during the dosing session to lay down. Um, eye shades, music, some snacks, things like that.
1: Very cool.
0: Wow, wow. You know, earlier you mentioned Travis that, or Jeff. It might have been you too. That this is, this has kind of come back more in the last few years. You know, um, I think I first heard of ketamine myself in 2018, approximately. So let. You know where is this coming from has this been on you know, it just feels like it's suddenly a thing which is wonderful but what is what is the history of this use because i can't imagine it just started now i mean people have probably been talking or thinking about this for quite a while
2: absolutely um and there's really uh depending on the culture we're talking about these you know entheogens, psychedelics, plant medicines have been around for centuries, if not millennia. Right, so cultures throughout the world have been using plant medicines. As long as there's been recorded history and, and have used them as part of ritual, as a part of healing and as a part of gaining knowledge. And so there's a long history of the use of these medicines. Um, it's only been I think it was in the 30s or 40s when these things started showing up in kind of the Western model of of treatment and medicine, you know, with the synthesis of LSD-25 by Albert Hoffman, kind of by accident. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so, you know, once he realized what this compound could do and uh, um, people got interested in how could it help with psychiatric issues, right? So originally, like LSD was considered what they call a psychomimetic, which is something that can mimic the symptoms of psychosis. Mm -hmm. So originally it was thought that this could really help model um, for researchers and psychiatrists, just the, you know, how to help people with psychosis and what does that experience feel like? So you could have an experience of psychosis, I guess, was kind of the idea, but then it would go away when the compound wore off so that was one original use of these of these medicines in a in I guess a research context or in a medical you know western kind of context Um, there's a lot more great detailed you know uh, information there about you know folks who went down to Mexico and got introduced to the psilocybin mushrooms down there and kind of brought that back and again it was Albert Hoffman who um, synthesized psilocybin in a lab and that was being used then in clinical trials, really trying to see um, what this could help with. You know, mm-hmm. and in fact, LSD really was an early treatment for alcoholism. Mm. And in fact, um, Bill Wilson, the founder yeah. of, he had an LSD experience that kind of led to his spiritual awakening, and eventually the creation of AA. So, psych, so psychedelics have been around for a long time. Um, And and then, as as you may be aware, you know, as the drug war started coming of age in the 70s, all that research got shut down. So there were thousands of studies happening in the 40s, 50s and 60s and early 70s with lots of promising results. And that just all ended one day. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember listening to a podcast. I think it was Bill Richards or someone was saying that they had dosed people and then got the letter they needed to shut it down and they all just kind of agreed to say hey I think we got the letter tomorrow
0: (laughs) yeah thank goodness goodness.
2: shut down and then research kind of had stopped until the 90s Uh, the above ground research right but a lot of this kind of went underground and has been continued on you know an unbroken chain since that time Mm -hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Where, is, oh, go ahead. where is the research right now for the? You know, we've talked a lot about ketamine, but what is the the current? What what else are they studying? I know they're looking at PTSD and and right. you know, like you said, major depressive disorder. But um, are there any like bigger up and coming you know concepts that are being researched, like at the UW right now or or other places?
2: Right. Yeah. UW um, has been a part of the MAPS research program. So, MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, That's a great resource for folks who want to, you know, see a nice curated list of studies or books or, you know, want information. MAPS.org is a great website. Um, And they've been looking at MDMA for the treatment of PTSD. And one of the unique Things about that research paradigm is they actually chose to try to work with folks with the most severe forms of PTSD, including folks who have active suicidal ideation, which often in a clinical trial that might be a you know something that they might be less interested in bringing people in, and they would say, hey, let's try to help the people in most in need. So you start thinking about veterans, first responders. You know and part of i think why that push was so successful to get those things approved those studies approved is because as you know there's there's not a lot of great treatments for for chronic ptsd available or you know or things that can provide relief um, in less than years of therapy right mm-hmm. so they provide relief more rapidly. And so maps right now they just completed their phase 3 trial and phase 3 so there's kind of three phases of FDA research. The first phase is a really tiny, you know, you know, small group of people, maybe at a few different sites just really looking at safety, feasibility, making sure that the compounds are safe to give. Sometimes that'll be with healthy volunteers and sometimes that'll be with folks with a particular condition. Phase two is kind of expanding that to see if it can work with PTSD and so maps their results in phase two showed that. um, MDMA assisted psychotherapy is effective in treating PTSD and it looks like phase three confirmed that. So MDMA may be the first FDA approved psychedelic um, aside from ketamine, uh, probably within the next couple of years, I would think. Wow. they're thinking maybe even this year it could get approved for PTSD treatment so that's really exciting that is so amazing
1: it really is
2: a part of got to be a part of those studies I missed that just a little bit we were in recruitment um and uh they closed the study right before I could get get a participant on that study but um so that's really exciting um And then at UW, we're also right now actively recruiting for two studies with psilocybin. So our lab really focuses on the treatment of trauma and addiction. Um, and So we are currently actively recruiting for a study looking at meth use disorder and um, opioid use disorder. Mm. And so if there's any clinicians or listeners out there who think that they may know of somebody or may feel they qualify for that study I really encourage you to go to the protea website which will be linked in our show notes here to, um, and you can get in touch with our coordinators see if you might be eligible for that study and that's an open label study so everybody in that study um, once enrolled they would get the active psilocybin dose um, and that's a safety feasibility study to look at the potential for psilocybin and and treating Matthews disorder and opioid use disorder, so it'd be like a phase one study.
1: Wow, and you were talking a bit about PTSD and trauma, and you know what the three of us know, and I think a lot of our listeners either know or are experiencing, is you know the the tracing current um, diagnoses or issues to traumatic events in our past. Of various um, magnitudes, and and so I'm just thinking as as we're doing more and more trauma treatment, having additional routes to explore and refer, um, just makes me feel like things are coming together at the right time. And and um, is that the thing you see most, Travis? Is is folks looking for? Uh, treatment alternative treatments psychedelic assisted therapy in particular for trauma or um, what are you seeing there for folks who are seeking uh, this assistance what are they presenting with
2: in terms of like our outpatient clinic here right yeah i would say um it's been a variety you know trauma certainly treatment resistant depression folks uh, with anxiety um, folks who maybe have brain injuries or things where they're curious about the neuroplasticity side um, and if that could kind of help with some of the side effects of those brain injuries. Um, so so quite a range of 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 folks are seeking out. Uh, Ketamine assisted therapy uh, hasn't been really. I haven't noticed anything like here's a theme like this is. This is the kind of presenting issue we see a lot of. Um, but. Probably I would say if I had to pick a number one thing, it would be kind of folks who've really tried to get help for depression, chronic suicidality, and just haven't found that relief.
0: I would say in in my caseload, I see um, like debilitating anxiety, possibly due to PTSD, but also just really you know people struggling to function and and you know and also bipolar disorder and and in those depressive states and and I'm just so glad again that you're here talking about this and and telling you know letting even more people know because for me as a clinician you know if I have a client who says like "Just, do you think I should go to you know some southern country and and go on this retreat I'm like I I don't know if you should go there and do that thing I I you know, that is not like a source that to me is reputable or that I can consult with and provide ongoing care. But I do know people are desperate for more options and more solutions. And so I'm just really grateful for, you know, you and, you know, the UW and winding path, even bringing it into, you know, a Dane County and a private outpatient setting and, uh, yeah, I mean, at least for me, it's like, it's the debilitating symptoms that is is, is really right. seeking that support.
2: Right, and one of the really rewarding aspects of this work is to see folks who've had those debilitating, years-long struggles, and again, not everybody has a rapid response, but ketamine, one of its, I guess, proponents, you know, one of the ways it works is sometimes really rapid relief, you know, um, and even that little bit of a break can be really powerful for people to see. OK, so this is what life could be like, um, you know, and so with that becomes, you know, also that like the vigilance of providing that safe therapeutic containment. you know, sometimes as those symptoms come back, hopelessness kicks up. And so that's why you know, I encourage people, this is a part of a longer therapeutic process rather than a one and done kind of treatment. You know, and, yeah. and that's why we've really leaned into the, the psychotherapy piece of it, um, is that it's, it's still kind of a, uh, can be a longer road for folks, but that that, that alternative is possible, it is here. And you know, you don't have to go to Jamaica um, or, or to, you know, somewhere where you don't know anybody. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not disparaging those. I don't know those no. programs. Um, but but I share your your thoughts of like, oh, it'd be nice to have someone more locally or somebody I know personally, right? To suggest. Mm-hmm. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to come here and talk about what we're offering too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, let I know I was curious, let's transition to that. You know, this something you offer in practice in outpatient care. You know, tell us more. What does that that look like you know how do how do people do they need a referral are there certain feet like what is the fee what what does the journey look like if if any of our listeners a any listeners are interested but b any therapists who are saying <clears throat> okay i want to send you know someone to you like is this a six week period is this ongoing care you know can, can you kind of tell us a little bit more about that? yeah that's
2: a great question um so one of the ways to to express interest in this treatment is uh, to go to the winding path website and we've got an online consultation form that folks can fill out where they'd have a chance to say, hey, I'm interested in ketamine assisted psychotherapy. I'd like to try to work with Travis. Um, and that's that's our kind of like one stop shop to, to get your name on our list and then um, one of us will reach out to the person and kind of set up an initial phone consult just to. Do a little of the psychoeducation, some of the things like I've talked about today, we'll talk through that. I'll get, you know, just a little bit of information about their situation to see if it seems like, hey, yeah, let's set up an appointment. And so, if, you know, if we agree to, like, let's just start the process, uh, then folks would come in and and we would start, you know, kind of a, a therapy relationship. Um, folks who have health insurance, we can actually, you know, utilize insurance for the the preparation and, and the integration sessions, right? As part of the psychotherapy. Um, so I think that's often helpful for people because uh, cost is of course a concern for everybody. Um, and, you know, I would say, you know, we don't have like a fixed number of sessions we need to meet with somebody before we would determine whether or not let's do a ketamine session. But our process is, you know, around 10 sessions of prep, Right, and then we'd also have a psychiatrist meet with the person and do a medical evaluation. Um, and so we are doing an assessment to determine whether, you know, goodness of fit, to make sure there's no um, contraindications for this this medicine work, right? So we're taking great care to try to make sure um, that we do a thorough assessment with people, both medically and psychiatrically. So we'll, I'll do a psychological assessment with somebody. And then um, if it seems like we, want to continue to progress, that's when we start working on the preparation and really getting into the nuts and bolts of the ketamine experience. Um, And then once we pick a time to do the dosing day, uh, that's you know a three-hour session where you would have both the the medical provider, so a psychiatrist on our staff, and then either myself or one of our other trained therapists um, who the person has been working with will sit and it's usually about a three hour session. Um, Here we use called a sublingual lozenge. So there's several routes of administration for ketamine. We've talked a lot about IV already. Um, The other routes are there's a nasal spray called S ketamine, which is FDA approved for um, treatment resistant depression. Um, That's a more expensive medication Uh, and there's fewer options for uh, adjusting dosage, and so our psychiatrists will use It's called racemic ketamine. It's basically a mirror image of the molecule of S-ketamine. They're just kind of mirror images of each other. Um, Racemic ketamine is the one that's been um, approved as an analgesic, but uh, it's also the one that's being used off label for treatment resistant depression, anxiety, treatment of trauma. And so um, our psychiatrists feel like they can really titrate the dose to try to work specifically with people on an individualized basis right so they can really titrate that easier with a lozenge with folks Um, and they start with a conservative dose people are still able to communicate with us if they choose to so they could either kind of go inward um, and have their experience inward but they can also report out things they're experiencing and we'll make sure to write those things down so they don't have to try to remember things And so there's that three hour session. So that session unfortunately right now insurance doesn't cover. And so kind of a good baseline for thinking about that is that's $2,000 a session because you have two providers who are there with you for three hours um, providing that really, you know, solid support. And then after that, then we would do at least a couple, you know, probably at least an integration session or two. Um, Definitely offer like a phone support option in between sessions, too, because it can be kind of destabilizing for people. Mm -hmm. Just want to make sure they feel supported after the process, too, and at least doing scheduled phone check-ins. And all of that, we kind of work out individually with each person, kind of what level of support they might need. And then we say, you know, see how that goes, do some integration, and then look at maybe doing a second session, right? And sometimes then we can adjust the dose and maybe have a deeper experience depending on how they tolerate the first session. And so our psychiatrists are really great at working individually with people just to kind of. Um, yeah, just making it really individualized care, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because people tolerate these medicines differently, right? And so and then the other route of administration I haven't mentioned yet is an intramuscular injection and right now that's not something that we offer. Um, mm-hmm. That more reliably, you know, puts people in the psychedelic space. So another thing. These are kind of heady terms, but there's like the psycholytic model, which is, you know, you're in a you're in an altered state, but you can still you can you're still in contact with the world around you. And then there's the deep psychedelic state where you're much more internal and maybe even disconnected from your body and. Perhaps even feel as though you're elsewhere. And people can get into a psychedelic state using lozenges as well, um and that's where that dosing titration with the psychiatrist really plays a role.
1: Wow, and, so, yeah. and again, I'm thinking, who wouldn't want to have a therapeutic relationship with the people that are um with somebody that is guiding you or sitting with you through this versus a uh, you know a a single uh, injection or an episode in which you kind of do this by yourself right
2: right it's it's very unpredictable what kind of experience a person will have and then the same person can have different very different experiences on the same dosage
1: it makes me think too travis um this is not microdosing. this is not people uh finding somebody to give or give them or finding ways to procure hallucinogenics and deciding that this is the thing that's going to help and going off and doing the, doing them on their own. So, you know I wonder if you'd speak to that a little bit and and because I've had folks say, should I just take these? um, similar to Jess's question?
2: Right. That's when I shift into the harm reduction approach mm-hmm. and, and and lean into more of that that educational piece of talking about the importance of set and setting, and so thinking about what mindset you're in before you take these substances. You know, Stan Groff is a really uh, important researcher. He did a lot of LSD work, and then when they shut that down, um, him and uh, he... he I think it was his it's his wife who they developed holotropic breath work, which is is a, yes. a way to get to an altered state without taking a system. So I also want to say there's other ways to get into non-ordinary states in a therapeutic way that don't require taking one of these medicines. And an advantage to that is if you get if it gets too uncomfortable, you can just stop.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Which
2: is a nice advantage. Where with these medicines, it's kind of like once they're in, you kind of are in until the medicine works its way through your system. Um but kind of coming back to your question. Yeah, should I just take this? You know, I, I just talk with folks a lot about. Set and setting. Who are you going to do this with? What would be a safe space to do this and just really focused on safety and reducing harm, you know, and thinking about dosages and maybe turning them on to some resources like the psychedelic explorers guide is a great book written by James Fadiman that a lot of people will use to educate themselves in more detail about, you know, proper set and setting. Um, and like and I was saying Stan Groff, one of the things he said is psychedelics are non-specific amplifiers. right? So they amplify whatever's going on in your mind.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> whatever emotions you're having, and that's why we talk about the value of set and setting. And so mm-hmm. you got a plan to go maybe have a mushroom journey with a, a friend that you really trust, but you just had a huge fight with your spouse. It might not mm-hmm. be the right, right. And so really talking with people you know talking through those pieces. Um, And then you mentioned microdosing you know which a lot of people are really interested in and I I know there's some research groups that are starting to look at that and some randomized controlled trials uh, to see if if it is effective. Um, James Fadiman has written about this in his book that I mentioned um, where he's done citizen research so it's a lot of anecdotal research right now that people feel like it does give some relief um from like depression, anxiety. And what a microdose is, is what we call subperceptual dose. The idea there is you're taking such a small amount that you don't really notice it perceptually. Mm. And so it's using it more like a medicine, and there's protocols, you know, like how many days to take it and then take a break. Because um tolerance. There's a tolerance that builds up. Thank you. I was having a word finding issue there. Um and some things to, to just put out there too. If you're taking an SSRI or some other SSRIs, a thing to be aware of with these classical hallucinogens is they work on the serotonin system. So there's always the possibility of a serotonin syndrome that can happen if, which means you know, basically you have too much serotonin going on in the brain. So that's something to consider if somebody's you know thinking about using one of these medicines. Um, and then another caution I like to put out there for microdosing is that um, microdosing, so like psilocybin, for example, works on the 5H2A serotonin receptor, but it also works on other receptors, one of which is the 5H2B receptor, which um, that binds in the heart. And so there are heart conditions. Um, that have something to do with the 5H2B system. And so there's been no, there's nothing that I've seen that says, you know, microdosing will cause a valvular issue for you. Um, but it's a caution to be aware of, particularly for folks who already have heart conditions to just really think through that maybe. You know, I'm not giving medical advice. I'm not qualified to do that. So maybe talking to a physician you feel comfortable with about that. Um, but from what I read kind of in getting prepared to talk today too, that. Um, if somebody's considering microdosing to think about doing it for shorter periods of time, you know, like you know, the, the concern really goes up if you're microdosing, say, for years, right, where you're really doing this quite frequently. Um, that's just an open ended question, and so just to be thought, you know, to have people just have all the information, to make an informed choice. So, that's one piece I would
1: consider well, and that's what this is really all about today is um, information informed choices. Uh, and I think while we were talking about um, treatment resistant depression and, and suicidality and and PTSD. Hope kept coming up for me and and I know you're similar in how you practice without a relationship and without hope and trust. We we don't get where we ultimately want and need to be, and and that's something I'm really taking away from this today. Is all this wonderful information, but also just about how you and Winding Path look at uh, treatment in a variety of ways, and and I really appreciate how you've brought this all together for us today.
2: Yeah, well, I'm, yep, you're welcome. You know, and. And not only here at winding path but i know in the research studies we do at uw as well we take really seriously that aspect of this that people are often coming in having tried a lot yeah and just there is a lot of hope that this can help and we're aware too that there can also on the other side of that come a lot of disappointment and then potentially hopelessness too which is why i think it's really important to have that relationship in case it doesn't quite go the way one hopes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. So
0: well, you know, yeah. and I appreciate that, even though you have your model that you're using at Winding Path, that you're, you are letting us know about all the options out there. You know, earlier when I expressed like, well, how wonderful that is, to have a ability to have a therapeutic relationship. You know, I have to kind of call myself out too on, like, my privilege of even saying like wow because when you hear the you know the dollar amount and the time that people have to put into it sometimes one of the best option is to go to a clinic and work with your pcp and and you know this model isn't as accessible to everyone so you know mm-hmm. i just appreciate you even as a researcher and you know as a mental health professional letting the listeners know while we're really excited about you know the model with the three stages that there are so many options for maybe all sorts of, you know, different people with different resources and different access issues, that this isn't just for one set of people, you know, that there are multiple options for people out there.
2: Right, and I'm glad that you mentioned that because it's also something we're actively discussing, thinking through is what are ways that we can increase accessibility, you know, like, UW at our lab, Protea, we're partnering with another lab where that is their primary focus is how to um, not only recruit people from a diff- different backgrounds, whether that be, you know, race, sexual orientation, to get folks who maybe traditionally wouldn't show up to a research study to mm-hmm. diversify mm-hmm. that we're working with. Because again, if we can't generalize the results, then it's not as useful as we'd like. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to that, there's a lot of recruitment efforts too, to even to recruit people of color as facilitators, as practitioners, and trying yes. to all that side because it's a sacred space you're entering with people. And to really feel safe and seen is of the utmost importance. And being a white male, I, it may not be me for everybody, right? And so yeah. we got to specify who offers these services, these treatments. And to speak to the economic piece, that's at the forefront of my mind too, because when I hear $2,000, I go, Uh, you know, I think it, I think it's worth it. If you can afford it at the same time, not everybody can. And so one of the things we're looking at, um, you know, there's like, I've been trained at Polaris in San Francisco. And so one of the things they're doing is um, group ketamine sessions, Mm -hmm. where it's a cost share. And so that's something Mm -hmm. we've been here in the future as we kind of get get our own processes you know humming along you know could we offer something like that as a cost sharing? you know um, what that might look like I've seen where we'll may do a dosing session together with the two mm-hmm. providers sharing that cost we're considering possibilities for say group preparation and group integration as well
0: mm-hmm. um, so
2: it's- forefront of our mind too to try to find out how do we make this more accessible
0: yeah that's wonderful that's wonderful thank you thank you for sharing that
2: yeah I appreciate you bringing that bringing that up
0: well this has been a wonderful conversation I'm just again so grateful for your time Travis thank you
2: oh you're very welcome and I I was hoping to put in a a shameless plug not for me Personally, I've already plugged Winding Path (laughs) and there's a new center, the Transdisciplinary Center for Psychoactive Substances. I might have gotten that name wrong, but at UW. And so that will be in the show notes too. I think in particular for anybody who's interested in what's going on at UW. um, And they do an annual symposium. It looks like in November, I believe. So for folks who want to learn more, keep your eye out for that if you want to support the research at UW there is an option to donate to the center Um, and there's a variety uh, I'm on the advisory board for that and we're in discussions about how to use those funds whether that's scholarships for students of color or just Mm. you know uh, honorariums to bring in speakers to really help educate our community uh, as well as to fund some of the research so um, just wanted to put a plug there if you're interested
0: I love that plug we'll Definitely. There'll be all that information in the show notes, because, again, we want, you know, that's one of the missions of Insight Mind Body Talk is that we are a community resource Mm -hmm. and that our community can use us as a resource to connect them to what they need. And the UW is a huge part of our community and they're doing, you all are doing amazing work over there and we want to support you too. So thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it.
2: Welcome. Thanks for being willing to, to support our community. And this, this podcast is a great way to do that.
1: We really enjoyed having you here. Thanks, Dr. Fox. Thank you.
0: Thank you again for joining us on Insight Mind Body Talk, a body centered mental health podcast. We hope today's episode was empowering and supported you in strengthening your mind body connection. We're your hosts, Jeannie and Jess. Please join us again as we continue to explore integrative approaches to well being. Until then, take care.